Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. You might know this quote. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Where does that come from? Anyone know? A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. And Charles Dickens begins A Tale of Two Cities with that quote, which has become maybe the most well-known, well-recognized in the English language. Does anyone know the period of time he was referring to with that quote? It's all right. I Googled it. I cheated. So I know things, but a lot of it's Google, so don't be impressed. It's the late 1700s. This is the French Revolution. And A Tale of Two Cities takes place, in you remember, in Paris and London, England and France, at the time of the French Revolution. That was a moment in history, if you take the end of the 1700s, French Revolution, that really embodied that whole century, the 1700s, which looking back we call the Enlightenment. And it really was, like Charles Dickens says in what seemed to be contradictory terms, the best of times. There was in the 1700s this emergence of a way to objectively understand the world around us, the scientific method and ways of thinking that made things more clear. It was the best of times, and modern medicine and so many of the conveniences we take for granted today came from that way of looking at the world. The 1700s were the worst of times. The French Revolution embodies that, the mass slaughter that took place in the name of reason. It was as if after a medieval slumber, knowledge finally rose up, saw the world, grew 10 feet, took its club, and killed, really, so many of the things that were important before it. It was the worst of times. So, anything invisible, which, by the way, the most important things in life are invisible, those things were largely lost. The spiritual, the meaningful, began to erode. It was the worst of times. times. Now, Charles Dickens, in this quote, compares the 1700s To his own day, does anyone know when Charles Dickens lived? I googled it. I can tell you, you'll be impressed. 1800s, 100 years later. And in the middle of the 1800s, most of Dickens' novels pertain to this, in the middle of the 1800s was the Industrial Revolution. It was another incredible moment in history with great advancement, just like was seen in the 1700 Enlightenment. The Industrial Revolution led to rapid progress of being able to use the resources around us to develop things so that really population could grow like no one thought it possibly could grow because now we could make food much more quickly and so forth, produce other things. And it was, as Dickens says, 
only to be described in the superlative degree, meaning it was not a good or a bad time. It was the best time, so much growth, and the worst time, if you went into the factories, it was terrible, and that's what he often writes about. The same was true not only of the Enlightenment of the 1700s. There was a great moment. It was the best. It was the worst. And then the mid-1800s Industrial Revolution. It was the best. It was the worst. And the same could be say, said of the time period we're considering in this class, the Reformation of the early 1500s. And I bring this up because the first question to address in a class like this is why should you care about the Reformation of the 1500s. That was 500 years ago. You have bills, you have jobs, you have children and family and other concerns. Why should this matter? And I just want to begin answering that question by pointing out that the beginning of the 1500s have proven to be, in hindsight, some of the most significant decades in all of human history. Much like the Enlightenment of the 1700s or the Industrial Revolution of the 1800s, what Dickens says of those times could be said of the Reformation and possibly, arguably, could be said even more of those first few decades of the 1500s. Because the Enlightenment of the 1700s never would have happened without a Reformation. The Industrial Revolution of the 1800s never would have happened without a Reformation. Now, no doubt... Every age of mankind is important, ours included. And the day of small things, Scripture says, don't despise it. So our lives, if they seem to be involved in menial or smaller things, not some great enlightenment, but here we are living our lives. These are all threads in the great tapestry that God is weaving for himself, his purpose. And we will see in the end how the small days and the small experiences that we live through are as significant as the big ones in terms of bringing about God's purposes so that Jesus Christ may be exalted as the Lord of all times and the Lord of all domains. But, that being said, certain seasons in history are louder than other seasons. That is, we live in the tension of paradoxes, of experience. We have certain issues that we wrestle with in our lives. And God's providence whispers through the event of our lives. But at certain determined seasons in history, that providence stops whispering and it raises in pitch until it is shouting and it's almost deafening. And the things that we wrestle with in the calmer seasons of history in those moments are shown in bright color, in high relief. It becomes very obvious. Some will hear it and say, that is the best of times. Others will hear it and say, that is the absolute worst of times. But the point is, everyone hears it. And that's what the Reformation was. God's providence, very loud. And it was so loud, in fact, that we today hear the echoes of it. For example, do you value freedom. Do you think that the individual person is important? Do you believe that government should not be able to tell you what to believe or what not to believe? Do you prefer hard scientific evidence over stories about goblins and fairies? 
Are you convinced that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is more important than religious rituals? Can you read? If these things are true, then you experience, at least in part, an echo of something that happened half a millennium ago across an ocean, the Reformation. So a study like the one that we are beginning today is of immense importance if you just want to know why people think the way they think today. That being the case, that will not be the primary emphasis of our class, just a byproduct of it. We will be considering great ideas, but we will be considering more than great ideas because we're Christians. And the Christian lives a life that is more incredible and remarkable than anyone else. We cannot be Christians unless there is, so to speak, dirt under our nails. We're not afraid to get our hands black with earth, to get involved in the issues. We're not mere spectators just observing as history goes on. We're Christians. God calls us to live out the great ideas of Scripture. And so while we'll be discussing great ideas, while we have in the last three months, under Kyle's direction, been discussing the great ideas of the Reformation, Kyle has often emphasized, even in the way that he's taught, how important it is not just that we know what we call Reformed theology, but that we live it out. I think, in fact, this is one of the reasons for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus came certainly to seek and to save those who were lost. He came to be an atonement for the sins of mankind, and this is true. But another reason for the incarnation was that Jesus came to be an example of what someone, a person, a someone like you or me, who is taken up with the great truths of Scripture, the great ideas of God's truth, what that person's life could become, to realize the potential of it. For to this you have been called, writes Peter, long after he had been called away from his fishing boat to an active life. To this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Jesus' life boomed the great tensions we experience, the great themes of our own life today, but it was made incredibly clear in Jesus' life. He displayed them well. He shouted them for us to hear now 2,000 years later, still distinctly, this is what it looks like to be taken up with the truths of God. And I think that is, it is telling that when you open the New Testament of your Bible, before you get to any of the letters, you have four biographies of Jesus. You have his life with his teachings presented. That is one of the great reasons, not only that we're studying the Reformation, but that as you've perhaps seen, the name of this class is Lives of the Reformation. We'll be considering biographies of men, ten great men to be exact, because we want to see not only the ideas that took hold of these men, but how that practically played out in their lives, because that has great practical application for us today. We will see in these ten men... Issues that are no less important than they are for you today. Issues that deal with what is the nature of a person? What does it mean to be human? Who is God? What is authority? How should we respond to authority? And that great question, how can we be saved from sin? 
and made right with our Creator. These are no less important today, and they were the central issues at the time of the Reformation, and the central issues that gripped the ten men that we'll be considering in this class. These are lives, they are biographies, we are meant to learn from them. Just by way of brief overview, the men that we'll be considering, we will begin with here, John Wycliffe and John Huss. Two men who were considered morning stars of the Reformation. They didn't live to see the Reformation, but like John the Baptist, they prepared the way for it. They welcomed it from afar. They were necessary in God's purposes to bring about the Reformation. And then, of course, we come to Martin Luther. Many of us know that fiery German, often profane monk who rediscovered the Apostle Paul in a monastic cell entered into great controversy, was condemned by almost the whole world that he knew, and set the world on fire with his pen. But we'll also be looking at his beloved companion, fellow professor, one of his closest friends at Wittenberg, Philip Melanchthon, who took this wild German monk's rediscovery of the scriptures and presented it in clear and calmer tones and helped everyone else to learn it. First Magisterial Reformer of Switzerland will move to next, as Rick said, Ulrich Zwingli, who had a militant adherence and commitment to the absolute sovereignty of God over every facet of life. After him, William Tyndale, who really gave his life, lived in exile, and eventually was killed, so that as a consequence of his life's work, his compatriots could have the Bible in their own language, English. And much of his language is preserved for us in the King James Bible today. Then you have poor Thomas Cranmer, a man in the lion's den, caught up, sadly, in the politics of England under King Henry VIII, but by God's grace, turning the political situation to forward the cause of truth. John Knox comes next. Perhaps the most fiery, bold voice that ever boomed the gospel in Scotland and stood against kings and queens to do it. Then, John Calvin, as one untimely born, late into the Reformation, but like Paul, laboring more than all the rest, at least his writings have had the longest, seemingly most permanent appeal to Christians. And lastly, Menno Simons a peaceful Anabaptist who spent his life hunted like a dog in exile, fleeing the authorities for the sake of Scripture and conscience. These are the ten men that we're considering and we're interested in the ideas that took hold of them and also in how those ideas played out. These were ideas that drove these men, for the most part, into exile. They lost much that was precious to them. They were killed or they were exposed to public defamation. They were dishonored. They lost family. They lost friends. All because something they discovered in the scriptures took hold of them, gave them the courage to stand against the whole known world. These were men of whom the world is not worthy. And these are the men we'll be considering in this class. So that's something of what we'll be studying wanted to provide that with some reasons of why it's important to study these biographies at this particular time of the Reformation. But I want to move briefly 
to consider how we'll be studying them. I want to talk just for a moment about historical method, or what some would call historiography, if you like large words. And I am interested in method. Christian historians, just like any historians, have different methods when they approach history of how they think you should approach it. There's a lot of unanimity, a lot of agreement, but there's also some differences. I'm not going to descend into the details of historiography here, except just a little bit. I more want to touch on the attitude that we take anytime we are looking at figures of history, especially after the time of the Bible. Luther famously said, history is like a drunk man on a horse, and he falls off on one side into a ditch, and he climbs back on the horse, and he falls off on the other side. And if that's true of history, it's true of historiography. It's true of how we think about history as well. We tend to fall into one extreme, get up, and then fall into the other. On the one hand, this ditch on one side, we will call, here's another big word, hagiography. In other words, these are those who, when they think about the reformers, for example, tend to exalt these men to a place up in the heavens somewhere, as if these were people who could do no wrong, who only did right, who were heroes in every sense of the term. We call it hagiography because it's as if these are treated as, ironically, Roman Catholic saints who somehow reached a level of perfection, became almost gods and not men. And so there are some, when they think about any heroes of the faith, tend to exaggerate the strengths and ignore the weaknesses and the blatant failures of these men and women. The irony in treating these historical figures in this way, of exalting them too much, of almost worshipping them, is that the Reformation itself was a protest against this very practice in the Roman Catholic Church, against this adoration of the saints, of exalting any person to the level of worship that only God deserves. We should not treat anyone this way. Medieval Catholicism had its infallible Pope, and it had its great league of saints. These were those who had performed at least two miracles, who were unable of erring, who had reached really a moral perfection. And they went out and did, according to legend, deem, battle with demons and other incredible things, making them look a lot like the biblical figures we read of. You can see why this kind of history is interesting. The only problem is, it's not history. It's just legend. It's, it's just myth. It's really an accumulation of superstitions and of fans who, after the fact, made things up out of their own heads about their heroes to give them a better reputation. Philip Schaff, you may know him. He produced a multi-volume uh, series of books on the Ref Reformation, or on history of the Christian church, really, uh, called that History of the Christian Church. And at the beginning of that set of books, in his introduction, he begins to describe the duty of any historian, or us, as we look at history in this way. He says, the first duty of the historian, which comprehends all others, is fidelity, faithfulness, and justice. He must reproduce the history itself, making it live again 
in his representation. His highest and only aim should be, like a witness, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and like a judge, to do full justice to every person and event which comes under his review. The greatest danger before us if we treat the reformers or any heroes of the faith as though they were perfect, exaggerate the strengths, ignore the weaknesses, is that we'll prove ourselves liars. We won't have integrity. We won't be viewing the historical evidence as it is. Again, the irony is great because the point of the Reformation was to expose and remove dishonesty, especially about the past, and to bring about a renewed interest in what's actually true, what actually happened, what Jesus actually said and taught in his apostles. So we will find in the Reformers in the weeks ahead men tempted in every way like we are and with sin. Luther, famously, was viciously anti-Semitic later in his life, just like the rest of his culture, sadly. He also had a temper that he did not always control, the one thing he repented of at the Diet of Worms. Zwingli, a great man, got his girlfriend pregnant, even though he was a priest early on, and he, wasn't supposed to have, he was supposed to be celibate. Thomas Cranmer helped a wicked king divorce his wife for another girl. John Calvin, it seems, had some issues with pride and how he viewed others. So we're going to pray in the study ahead that God would help us not to fall into this ditch of hagiography, not to consider the reformers impeccable or perfect, unable to err. We don't have to defend them in that way, contrary to the historical evidence. We can see them as people like we are with struggles like we have. So that's one ditch. We're going to try to avoid that, get back up on the horse. We're also going to try not to fall into a ditch on the other side. And this is a temptation as well. Probably in reaction to those who exalt the reformers almost into worship, there are some who see that and take a sort of pleasure in destroying that image of any hero of the faith. We might call these people iconoclasts, modern iconoclasts. The iconoclasts were people throughout history, but especially in time of the Reformation, who once they discovered that the Roman Catholic Church using images and statues was very similar to idolatry, these iconoclasts would rush into Roman Catholic churches and by force take the images, take the statues and shatter them on the ground. Now, the fact that they did not think those images should be there in worship, that was good. The fact that they broke into the church and cast these images onto the ground to shatter them, that was not, that was not good. And usually this was driven by a sort of mob mentality, an almost a perverse pleasure in destruction. Modern iconoclasts of the Reformation take a sort of strange delight in destroying the image of the reformers. Or they say, you think the reformers were such great men? Well, here's all their problems. And often they will talk about the anti-Semitism of Luther and all the problems of all the rest of the reformers. True things, 
That's true, but the problem is really with the attitude behind that. That's not an attitude that we want to adopt. G.K. Chesterton, uh, he spoke of this person using the phrase, the candid friend. And he said this, I venture to say that what is bad in the candid friend is simply that he's not candid, he's not honest. He is keeping something back, his own gloomy pleasure in saying unpleasant things. He has a secret desire to hurt, not merely to help. To paraphrase Chesterton, this kind of iconoclast of the Reformation would say, well, I'm sorry to say the Reformers were messed up. Only that person would not be sorry to say it. That's the problem. One of the greatest problems with this approach to history in general and to the Reformation is that it really lacks the Christian virtue of love. We are called on as Christians first to bear love to each other. And that means there are many here who have a great respect and admiration for the heroes of the Reformation. And if not, I hope that by the end of this class you will. Now, if you see that in others that this respect for these courageous men of history is inspiring in people a desire to live for Christ and to love Scripture and to serve each other, to come in and to take that image, even using facts of history like Luther's anti-Semitism, and to cast it on the floor just for the shock value of getting to see how the other person reacts. It's not love. It's very similar to Paul, if you remember in his letter to the Philippians. There's a shocking category of preachers he describes who were not preaching. They were preaching the gospel, but they were not doing it out of love. He says they were literally preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. How could someone advocate the truth with the attitude of hurting others? Yet, it's very possible. And that's what an iconoclast of the Reformation would do. Iconoclasm also lacks a love for these great men. These are men who, for all their flaws, are our brothers. They had faith in Christ. They served Him. They lived for Him. They failed like we fail. But we want to judge them historically in the way that we would hope others would judge us in the future. Aware of our weaknesses, understanding, trying to sympathize, why did we think the way we did when we erred? And we want to treat them in the same way Christian love calls for it. So then, what would it look like for us to stay in the saddle? Not fall off on either side neither worshiping the reformers, hagiography, nor destroying their image like an iconoclast. How do we stay right in the middle? What's the middle way here? I believe the best example of historiography is actually found in the Bible itself. The Bible is itself a book of history. The authors of the Bible were doing history. The Bible is a book unlike any other book of history. That's true. So we approach with caution, but at the same time, it's very similar. It is a book of history. And I want to point out one example of how authors in the Bible did historiography, did history. What was their historical method? And how will that help us to stay in the middle? The example that I think of, and if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. This is Hebrews chapter 11.
Let me make just a few observations about this. Hebrews 11 is historiography. It is the New Testament author of Hebrews considering many heroes of the faith of the Old Testament. And we want to see how this person does history so that we can be guided in our class in the next several weeks. Now, if you look at the beginning there of Hebrews chapter 11, that very first verse, see how it begins? Now, faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things, hope for the conviction of things not seen. Which cues us to the fact that the great theme of this history is faith. Here is a list of men who had faith in God. That's the main point. Now, if you just kind of scan your eye down through the rest of the chapter, we haven't time to read it all. But notice the list of biblical heroes here. He starts with Abel. It's a hero of the faith. Speaks well of him. You have Enoch, a righteous man. You have Noah, who condemns the world by his obedience. Then you move on to Abraham, and he gets several verses in your text for being a man of faith. And then Sarah gets a verse in there for her faith. You've got Isaac and Jacob to complete the patriarchs. Then you've got Joseph. Then you have Moses, great man of faith. Rahab, an unexpected woman of faith. Then you have the judges listed. This isn't chronological. They came before. Um, well, actually, no, that is chronological there. Sorry. Then you have David, and then you have the prophets. So here's a list in that whole chapter of great men of the faith, heroes. And one thing we want to point out here is that Hebrews 11 definitely does not fall into the ditch of iconoclasm. These people all had problems. And you know as you read the list, you know those problems if you've read the Old Testament. But notice, the author of Hebrews chapter 11 presents them as heroes worthy of imitation, who had great faith. And in this chapter, for the sake of its brevity, he does not mention any of their failures. Remarkable. There is a trend today to look back at any heroes of the faith. Think of the Puritans who are particularly under attack. Puritans failed in significant ways. Many of the Puritans in England and coming over to America especially were slaveholders which, looking back today, was one of their greatest failures, that they would not see that that was wrong. There is a trend among, especially those my age today, to try to discard the Puritans, or in this case, the heroes of the Reformation, because of the significance of their failures. But I think Hebrews chapter 11 urges us against this trend. Here are men who are not always great examples. There's Noah. Remember how he got drunk and disclosed himself in, his, in private there? Embarrassing. Abraham, to save his own life, gave away his wife. Moses and Gideon both shrunk from God's call when it first came in fear. Of course, David killed a man and stole his wife. That's not too good. And Samson, you see his name explicitly in the chapter? The judge who is, in almost every way, the greatest example of what not to be and what not to do as a Christian. 
and yet he's presented also as a man of great faith. This chapter is avoiding this iconoclasm of discarding historical figures because of some of their larger blind spots and failures. The key thing is, did they have faith in God? This is not saying, well, we should go back and appreciate Hitler. He was a man who did not have faith in God. The key thing was these were men who had great trust in God and in many areas of their life it expressed itself in courageous boldness for the good of others. And they also had problems. Does not mean we have to discard them. But we want to avoid that and Scripture does avoid iconoclasm. But you know Scripture also avoids this hagiography. And I think the way we know that is even as you read Hebrews chapter 11, when you come across certain names like Samson, why is it that you shrink back and say, wow, how is that a man of faith? It's because you know the Old Testament story of Samson. And in the Old Testament history of Samson, also a biblical history, none of the failures are painted over. They're all presented very clearly. Why is it that we know that David killed a man, had him killed, and stole his wife? Because the author of biblical history did not want that information concealed from us. It would be easy for the Israelites, since David was such a pivotal figure in their history, and they had so many enemies that were just looking for ways to accuse them, for them to ignore that part of history. They didn't have to put that in the biblical record. But God desired that in the biblical record. The same is true of Abraham and his failures with his wife. The Old Testament record and the New Testament records about the apostles show time and again how they fail. It doesn't shrink from it. It doesn't think that if they show you Peter denied Jesus three times at the hour of Jesus' greatest need, then suddenly you'll distrust all of Christianity. It is willing, the biblical text is willing to be honest about the failures of these persons. And the purpose in that openness, that integrity in the way the Bible does history, is to remind us that there is only one great perfect hero in all of the scriptures, and that is the triune God. He's the only impeccable one. He's the only one who strays away, stays away from all temptations and all failures. We see it in the life of Jesus. When we read his life historically, it's very careful in the Gospels to present him as one having no flaws. But that's because historically, he had no flaws. The Bible is an honest book. Truth is of utter importance in the Scriptures. And therefore, though Hebrews 11 avoids iconoclasm of delighting and destroying the reputation of those who failed. At the same time, the biblical text is very honest about these failures. So that after we have read of all the histories of these men, after we've come to admire them as we should for their courage, for all that they have done and all that they have risked and all that was accomplished by God through them, we would then turn to the God who accomplished all these things through them and worship and serve Him only. This, therefore, as we close, is the model that we want to follow in this class in the next 12 weeks. Staying on the saddle, God help us, not falling to either side. We will respect these men. They are men of enormous faith. They lived in the best and the worst of times in a period of history of great importance for all the rest of Western history and beyond. 
And they exercised an incredible amount of faith. They could have been included in that list in Hebrews chapter 11. Men of whom the world is not worthy. And at the beginning of chapter 12, the same application could be made to us that was made to the original hearers of Hebrews. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, we put off sin, we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. We will find in the lives of these men that their struggles are usually our struggles. The ways that they are weak is usually the way we are weak, and the ways they are strong are the ways that we are or wish to be strong. You will find a lot to relate with. These are not just ideas. They are tempted like us in every way, but they are confident in the author, the almighty author of all history, that he will use their small contribution to bring about his kingdom against all earthly odds, all worldly and demonic powers. So their age, the best and the worst of times. But above all, the Reformation was the time that God had appointed to bring about the reemergence of the truth of his word from the pile of rubble under which it had been buried. And he was going to do that through some weak and poor instruments but as a consequence, the truth would triumph. We have about five minutes now at our conclusion. If anyone has any questions, we can field them, and if not, we will pray and close. Yes? There are several. Oh, yes, it'll actually be a different book each week. Um, It'll be a different book. It'll be a book related to the reformer we're discussing each week. She's asking if I could share the name of the book books that I'll be giving out during class, and they are all books related to the reformer we're discussing that class. Probably a little more than half I've read, but some of the books I read on the reformers um, were good but very academic or dry, or they just weren't good. And so I'm not going to give all of those away. So sometimes I've had to pick a book not directly, or that I haven't read, but that has very good reviews. So, yeah. Any other questions? The book today was The Unquenchable Fire by... Michael Reeves. The book today, The Unquenchable Fire by Michael Reeves. If you only have time to read one book on the Reformation, that would be the book I would certainly recommend Funny, enjoyable, clear, concise. Um, me and Michaela, we read about a paragraph of it every night as we go to bed. We're about halfway through it. It's just really well written. So I encourage you to read that. The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. The Unquenchable Flame. R-E-E-V-E-S. Reeves. Yeah. All right, good. Any other questions? Yeah, in the back. Uh, the tenth reformer is named Menno Simons. Oh, yes. Just like Simon with an S. S-I-M-O-N-S. And he will be of particular interest because um, wherever Ernie is, uh, Ernie comes from Mennonite stock, Mennonite stock. So there you go. And I come from Amish stock, which is not far different. So uh, interesting fellow. Any other questions? Ah, yes. Um, 
Yes. Which part are you talking about? She's asking, um, I mentioned a scripture. Yeah. Well, I'll have to go back in there and look. I'm not entirely certain of which point you're talking about, but I'll get that verse to you. Maybe after class. For sure. Yes, Joel. So Joel, Joel asked, isn't Calvin also responsible in some way for the burning of certain persons? Yes, that's famously, there's a man named Michael Servetus. That's the one you're talking about. We'll see him when we talk about Calvin. Calvin was uh, trained in law and also in theology. He was actually the only one really in Geneva who was qualified to represent Geneva against Servetus. Servetus, who'd already been condemned by the Catholics elsewhere, they were going to burn him. He got away. He came to Geneva, bad-mouthed in public. Calvin caused trouble. They tried to convince him. He, he denied the Trinity. That's one of those things we'll have to work hard to not excuse because it was not good because they end up burning Servetus. But one of those things we have to work hard to sympathize with that period of time. No one at that period of time, well, Almost no one in that period of time would have been surprised by that. Calvin had asked several other people, what do you think we should do with Servetus? And they all said, well, you've got to burn him. That's what you do to a heretic. So it was not right. It was common. We'll give them the Christian charity of trying to understand what they were doing, but we won't excuse it as well. Yes. Hmm. It reminded me of the two extremes of the horse rider, this ditch and this ditch. And we take our desires and pull down on either side of those scales. So <laughs> yes. We want to be true. Mm-hmm. If, if we want Calvin to be evil, that ditch says <laughs> he's evil. Look at him. Absolutely. So, fantastic point. Uh, mentioning last week's sermon at the beginning, we talked about knowledge and how desire influences what we come to know, what we think about certain things. And uh, the point he was making is that's true when we look at history of the reformers. If we want Calvin to be evil, if you come and you've met a, a mean Calvinist, okay, maybe you're here and you've met a mean Calvinist, and they're out there, we're out there, you know, so God has to grow us, so sometimes that happens. You've met a mean Calvinist, you had a bad experience. So now, this is a Calvinist, so Calvin, you don't know a thing about this guy. You don't know when he lived or who he was, but if he made this mean Calvinist, he's bad. So then if you learn about him, that desire comes in, your experience. And then if someone says, well, he burnt Servetus, and you go, ah, I knew he was bad, you know. But if your desire is, wow, I've really appreciated his institutes, really helped me. And uh, so when you read that, you're more likely to go like, oh, well, he must, there must be a reason. So we do want to be aware, which is good. That's what we want to do is to be aware of how our desire impacts the way we look at history. And that's why, again, we talk so much about attitude because our attitude in approaching history is what will determine whether we see history clearly or not. Are we willing to confront the truth, be honest about it? And do we not have some weird perverse desire to just ruin reputations? Yeah, 
well, it's perverse but normal. Unfortunately, a perverse normal desire to ruin reputations. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this first class. I hope you've enjoyed it. Let me pray for you. And next week, we will begin with a study of John Wycliffe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you very much for these men. And I do look forward to thinking more about them. Pray for help for us that you would give us courage as they had, that you'd keep us from the errors they, had, they, they held, but that you'd give us great courage like you gave these men and women whom we'll see only briefly, but we're also very courageous in the truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us whether our age proves to be in hindsight, one of those ages that is like an, an epic of change and of great significance, or if it's a calmer quieter time. I pray either way that we would prove faithful, the one thing required of stewards. In whatever time you place us, we don't choose our history, but we choose our responses to it. And I pray that our responses would make us also imitators of the heroes of the faith who counted all as lost to follow Christ and were unwilling to move from their conviction concerning the word of God, even at cost of life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.